Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. Happy Lent, almost Holy Week. We're going to kick off today with just a few reminders. We are nearing the end of our Acts study. We've got just a few weeks left, I think three. Is that right? Yes, three more weeks, including next week. So if you get home and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, it's Holy Week. Are we really having Bible study? Yes, we are really having it on Holy Wednesday. And that's just my ploy to get you to come to church. So just a reminder, Palm Sunday this Sunday, Holy Week next week. We've got lots of different ways that you can plug in. If you haven't been yet, we've got two more opportunities for our noon Wednesday meditation in the Bishop Moore Chapel today and next week. And we'll have a number of different experiences next week. Just grab a bulletin or magazine on your way out. Make sure you've got the schedule. Plug into something. Come to something special. We only do the Holy Week liturgies once a year, and they're all very unique and special and engaging, and I'd love to see you all try something perhaps you haven't tried before as we go between Palm Sunday and Easter. You might note, how many of you remember that it used to be we do Palm Sunday and the Passion in the same day? Do you remember that? It was sort of like whiplash. We would come in and you'd wave palms and everyone would be excited and 10 minutes later, Jesus is on the cross. And so it was just, it was, it was shocking. A few years back, there was a special, I don't know, rule passed or whatever um, that allowed us to appeal to the bishop to not do the passion on Palm Sunday. And it was... It was predicated on a certain percentage of your worshiping congregation that will actually come to church on Good Friday. So if you could show that enough people went to church on Good Friday, then he'd let you or she would let you skip the Passion on Palm Sunday. And so I did this years ago, and then when I came to St. Michael, did the same thing. We have good enough attendance on Good Friday that we're able to kind of bump the Passion. Apparently in the 60s, they combined the Passion reading with Palm Sunday because people just weren't going to church on Good Friday. And they wanted people to hear that story before Easter. And so we have good attendance on Good Friday. So don't prove me wrong. Come to church on Good Friday. Um, we still need to keep those numbers up because we get to just do Palm Sunday. And it's kind of great because everything stays high and exciting. And then we get the entire arc of the story throughout the week from Thursday to Friday to Saturday to Sunday of Easter. And it's really something special. And so if you've never done some of those midweek services in Holy Week, pick one and come and just see some of the interesting, unique things that we do in those liturgies. I think it'll be fun. And if you've not been on Palm Sunday, well, let me take that back. Well, if you've not been on Palm Sunday, come because it's festive and it's great. If you came last year on Palm Sunday, we had been combining the services at nine o'clock just to be festive because I love bagpipes. Did you know that <laughs> apparently bagpipes weren't allowed in the church for a long time? Um, whatever. Bagpipes are great. And so I was like, let's not only bring bagpipes in the church, let's march them right down the aisle. So it's really a big festive party at 9 a.m. But this year, last year we had over 900 people at the 9 a.m. service because we combined it. It was too many. And so this year we're keeping our two 9 a.m. services. So even the people who go to the joy service in, in the chapel can join us for the procession with the bagpipes, process right into this space, and then we'll have enough space in the church 
because you just can't fit 900 people in that church. It's just too many. And last year, there were people who were standing in the narthex having marched in with the bagpipes who couldn't sit. That's not okay. So, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of, it's kind of exciting. But on the other hand, you don't want anyone to not be able to actually attend church. So come this year, it's not going to be overcrowded. It'll be crowded, but we are still keeping both services so that everyone gets a seat just in case you may not have last year. So we're excited. It's going to be a great week. Um, and let's kick off the last little slide down of Acts with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, as we near the end of our study of Acts, we give thanks for the privilege of being able to be together and study your word. I pray that our hearts and minds may be opened, that space may be made for your spirit, and that we are filled up and sent from this place with the courage to do the work you've given us to do for the world you love. Be with our friends and our family who need your healing touch today for all those we are worried about, for all those we hold in our hearts and minds, for all those who do not know your love. All this we pray in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Today we, hey. Oh yes, you may have seen the announcement yesterday. Thanks, that was, yeah, that was fun. Um, we have hired a new vice rector, and I'm very excited about that. This is a super guy. Um, we started this search last, I guess you could say last summer. Um, we went to general convention, which is that every three years, Episcopalians gather together and talk a lot. Um, so we did general convention, we sort of, told people about it and last fall began to interview candidates and we had a ton of names come forward as you might imagine about half of them we said thank you so much but we knew it was not the right fit and the other half we started to interview and this man who we ended up hiring was part of the group last fall but had to withdraw and we got down to the finalists last fall and just no one was the right fit and so we let everyone go and we started again in the spring and i called him back up and i said i know you withdrew because he's a rector out in idaho and this i think the, this position is a little well, it is very unique. There might be six or seven of these positions in the country. And so priests don't plan for or anticipate or even think about serving in this kind of role because it's so unusual. And I think that was really part of what had him withdraw because it seemed odd. He was a rector of a church, everything's going well. Rector to vice rector felt probably like a step down, even though vice rector here puts you in charge of more than pretty much every rector in the country. So I put on my sales hat and I said, let me tell you why this is great. And so he ended up coming back in and he was part of a group of finalists that we had this spring and he just was the best fit. And I got that sense last fall too, which is probably why I ultimately said we shouldn't call anybody last fall because he was just, he was the one I wanted. And so I went and got him. So <laughs> I'm very excited. I think he's going to be great. He's from New Orleans, grew up in New Orleans, went to India and graduated from an an international school in India in high school because his father was just 
part of a, he went there for a job, and so he finished high school in India, which I think is very interesting. He speaks more languages than English, and he's been in Sun Valley, Idaho for the last 12 years, which is not the worst place in the world, and different, though, than Dallas, and I think that that's, that's going to be a nice shift, and so he's I don't know, early 50s. He has two children. His youngest graduates from high school next month. And so they're becoming empty nesters, he and his wife, Rachel, and they will move down here in the summer. So I'm excited. I think this is going to be a really good fit. And so if you're interested, there'll be some opportunities next fall to go to little parties and things like that to meet the two of them. They're pretty great. And so I'm, I don't think, Nancy or Bonner, I don't think that anyone from the search committee is here, but... Definitely thank the people who are part of the search committee. Um, Kathy Genevine, Kathy's not in here, is she? I don't think so. Um, was the chair of the committee, and then you can see in the announcement who else was a part of it, but they're super. And they were, it takes a lot to join a search committee in the first place, and then when I look at them and say, let's not hire any of these people and do it again, <laughs> they, were, they were nothing but faithful and energetic, and it was great. So I'm excited about that. So I look forward to introducing you to Ken and Rachel this fall. All right, chapter 25. We are nearing the end of our Acts study. At this point, Paul is in custody. And as you know, Paul is in custody and will never be out of custody again. So the action for the rest of Acts is how Paul goes from Jerusalem to Caesarea to Rome, where he will ultimately be executed. And now we're just kind of seeing how all of those things unfold and take place. And hopefully we can get a little bit of knowledge about the way that the church was developed in that first century because of the work that Paul did. So chapter 25 has kind of three sections. I'll admit chapter 25 is not not the most engaging and interesting chapter of all of it, um, but we're gonna make it very interesting. So the first, Paul appeals to the emperor, and we're gonna talk about what that kind of means as a Roman citizen in just a second. There is a consult with Agrippa, King Agrippa, and we're gonna talk about who King Agrippa is. Does he have two G's? Nope. Okay. And then there's the defense in front of Agrippa. So we're, we have a few characters in here that we're going to unpack and connect to, you know, 50 years earlier. So we're going to start with the appeal to the emperor. So we know how we got here. Paul was saved by the tribune in Jerusalem from being killed. He was taken up to Caesarea, or down to Caesarea. You may, remember, you may note, and so I'll remind you, the language in the scripture talks about going up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. That's literal. Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet above sea level, and most of the rest of Israel is actually at or below sea level. So Jerusalem was quite literally, you went up to Jerusalem. We don't get that sense when we go to Israel very much because we're in a car. And so if you're going uphill over the course of a you know, number of miles, nah, I mean, you, you kind of know you're going uphill, but you can be unaware of that. If you're walking and you're carrying a bunch of stuff, you know you're going uphill. And so Jerusalem was quite literally going up a hill to get there because it was more defensible and it was just a smart place to be. So 
People go up to Jerusalem and they go down from Jerusalem, no matter if they're going north, south, east, or west. That's just physically what's happening. So the Tribune took Paul down to Caesarea. Caesarea, as you remember, is on the northwest coast of Israel. It is where the Romans had their headquarters for that region. So as I noted last week, Pilate would have lived in Caesarea and Felix lived in Caesarea. So the Tribune took Paul to Felix. Felix talked a bit and ultimately didn't do anything. And so in the interim between chapters 24 and five, Paul has been in custody under Felix's control for two years. So from the end of chapter 24 to the beginning of chapter 25, we just simply note Paul's been there for two years. Two years later, Felix is now gone, and there is a new governor, a proconsul in Judea named Festus. So we've gone from Felix to Festus, and Festus is the new guy in town, and he wants to establish some good relationships with the people who have authority in that area. And so just as a, a new ambassador may go and meet with leaders that are local, Festus is going to do the same thing. So Festus first goes up to Jerusalem, remember again, goes up to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders. Festus is trying to create some good bonds and relationships with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so he goes up to meet with these Jews. And the first thing the Jews do is tell him they want Paul. So let's look at chapter 25, very beginning, verse 1. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews gave him a report against Paul. They appealed to him and requested as a favor against Paul to have him transferred to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, planning an ambush to kill him along the way. If you remember, the tribune who first arrested Paul in Jerusalem learned about the ambush planned to kill Paul. Because he knew Paul was a Roman citizen, he took him to Caesarea under Felix's control in order to keep him from being ambushed and killed. Festus, two years later, is now back in Jerusalem, and he's meeting with the Jewish leaders. They're still wanting Paul. So Paul's just been sitting in a little prison or a cell or a house or whatever over in Caesarea for two years. And remember, I noted that Roman citizens, when they were held in custody, still had a dignified living. They would have been able to meet with friends. They would have been able to write letters to and from. And so Paul, while he is sitting in this prison, is able to maintain relationship, even if it's through letters, with some of the other churches that he helped to start all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean. So Paul's not, Paul's been sitting there, but he's not been perhaps unproductive. He's been able to stay connected. And so it's likely that Paul has continued to write and to teach through his people in ways that are really, really annoying the Jews. So even from a distance, Paul is still nagging at them, so much so that when they get the first introduction to Festus, they tell him, hey. So Festus comes up, right, wanting to make nice, and the Jews say, here's something you can do for us. We'll be nice to you. We will support you. We'll talk well of you. 
but we want Paul. So Festus is put in a hard place. He's the new guy. He doesn't want Paul to be killed. Paul's a Roman citizen. But he's also been, wants to establish good relationship with these Jewish leaders. And so Festus is a little confused about what to do. Festus immediately declines to send Paul to Jerusalem. So that at least he does. But he invites the leaders from Jerusalem to come down to Caesarea and make their case once again. Same thing that happened with Felix, right? Felix did not want to hand Paul over, but he did invite the leaders to come to Caesarea and make their accusations. So the leaders from Jerusalem come down to Caesarea and Paul is brought out and immediately surrounded by those Jewish leaders and they begin to criticize him and accuse him of all of these bad things that he's done. Look at verse 8. Paul said in his defense, I have in no way committed an offense against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against the emperor. That's all we get from Paul about his defense at this point. So Luke is intentionally not giving Paul the ink to explain once again why he has found himself in this situation. But I want you to note something that is different. Remember, Luke does not waste words. I have in no way committed an offense against the law of the Jews, okay, we've heard that before, or against the temple, and we've heard that before, or against the emperor. That is new. Paul has not, until this point, made an explicit reference to the emperor or to Roman laws. In this moment, Paul has, for some reason, we don't know, but for some reason, something has shifted in these last two years. And perhaps Paul understands that the Jews aren't going to get anywhere if they make this a religious issue. Maybe they'll get somewhere if they make this a political Roman issue. Now, who else knew that? The Jews who tried Jesus, right? Jesus was not going to be tried and Pilate was not going to condemn him because he, what, talked against the Jewish rules. That didn't, he didn't care. But when he began to challenge the authority of the emperor, Pilate had to do something because that's something Romans cared about. So Paul is perhaps preempting an accusation that he did something against Rome by saying he has not done anything against the emperor. So Paul, in this moment, appeals to Festus to go from Caesarea to be tried in Rome itself. Now, this is a very interesting thing, because Romans had this option, but it was not very common for a proconsul or a governor or someone like that to exercise that option. There are records. Um, are you all familiar with Josephus and some of the other historians of the day? There are records of Roman citizens appealing to Rome in all different regions of the Mediterranean. And by some accounts, governors or proconsuls may get hundreds of these requests a day. If they're getting hundreds of requests a day, they are declining 99.9% .9 of these requests. So although Paul can make this request as a Roman citizen, the request that he made is not exceptional. 
What is exceptional is that Festus considers it. Something's going on here where Festus, maybe he's new, maybe he doesn't know any better, or maybe he's scared. And we're gonna see Festus go to Agrippa and perhaps expose a little of his fear around Paul and the Jews, which is perhaps why he ultimately agrees to send Paul to Rome. So let's look real quickly at verse nine. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, asked Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there before me on these charges? So pause. Festus is still trying to link up with the Jews. Listen to what he says. Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there before me on these charges? So you can imagine the same kind of thing that happened with Jesus. Jesus was tried in Jerusalem, but in front of Pilate. Paul could have been tried in Jerusalem in front of Festus, but Paul said, verse 10, I'm appealing to the emperor's tribunal this is where I should be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. Now, if I am in the wrong and have committed something for which I deserve to die, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can turn me over to them. I appeal to the emperor. Then Festus, after he had conferred with his council, replied, you have appealed to the emperor, to the emperor you will go. So Festus has, in this first section of chapter 25, decided that he's going to get rid of Paul. Now Festus could have just executed Paul, and he probably would have gotten some heat from someone because Paul's a Roman citizen, but it was possible. Instead, Festus is probably more like Felix and really doesn't want to make a decision. And so the decision he makes is to not make one and to send Paul somewhere else for someone else to make the decision. And so Festus is within his rights to send a Roman citizen to Rome. But this is extremely, extremely exceptional according to other historians of the day. It just really didn't happen often, even though the request was made regularly. All right, questions about that before we move on to this middle section. The Romans? Yeah, the question is, do I think the Romans were putting people to death regularly? Um, mm, it depends on the region. The answer is regularly enough, yes. So it was not an exception that Rome would execute someone, no. Um, depending on the region and depending what was going on in the region, they might put more people to death. So crucifixion was their execution style of choice for non-Romans. And I'll say more about that in one second. Crucifixion was a very highly inefficient way to kill somebody. So then why crucifixion? Crucifixion was meant to terrorize the people that Rome governed, right? This was not just to kill somebody. I mean, killing somebody was easy. They wanted to kill someone in a horrible way because the message was, do not mess with us. So in that regard, it, it takes a lot of energy and resources to crucify somebody, so it had to be worth it. 
So if there was unrest in a particular region, they would kill more people more often and more publicly because the point of the killings was to settle the unrest, to let people know that you can try all you want, you will not overwhelm us, and you'll simply die worse for trying. So in that regard, yes, they killed enough people, but how many and how often depended on the political need that they had for the killings. Now that being said, I did note that crucifixions were not for Roman citizens. So we will see that, well, we're not gonna necessarily see it in, in the Bible, but the tradition holds that both Peter and Paul were executed in Rome. Peter was crucified. Paul was beheaded. The reason Paul was beheaded is because it was the dignified execution for a Roman citizen. Peter was crucified because Peter was not Roman. Now, we all know Peter, well, maybe we don't know. You may know that Peter was crucified upside down. So, like, if it could be worse, it was worse. And tradition says that Peter, when he was, when he was, uh, lawyers, sentenced, um, thank you, was sentenced to be crucified, said he was not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. And so they did so upside down, which I'm not entirely sure how even that works, but that's the way the story goes. But the reason Paul was beheaded is because he was Roman. Otherwise, he may have been crucified as well. Great question. I'm actually doing the Lenten meditation um, today in the Bishop Moore Chapel, and it's the, the passage, we're doing the seven last words of Christ, the seven weeks of Lent, and mine today is, I'm thirsty. And it's the only physical last word of Christ. If you ever heard, are you all familiar with seven last words of Christ? It was something that got popular, was it like maybe the 80s or something, when that became a big thing and churches like to do that? Um, still a good idea, even though it's, it's kind of manufactured. You don't really get seven last words in any one gospel. You kind of piece them together to create a, a portrait of that moment. But I am thirsty is the only physical last words. The other six are more relational or theological. I am thirsty is the physical one. And so if you're interested, I'm gonna talk a lot about crucifixion in my meditation, because it's horrible. And that's the point. So, sounds very attractive, right? Now you're all coming. All right, any other questions or thoughts? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, whose wife? I have no idea. Um, said Felix's wife was Jewish. I'm, here, I'm seeing people nod. Great, that's super. Um, <laughs> Well, so, so we're going to talk in a second about Agrippa and Bernice. Marriages were always, well, we think of marriages most often as something loving. Love was not the point of a marriage. I mean, that is so modern. That's really modern. I mean, that's like 20th century modern. Marriage was always about business. 
And so whose property needed to be bound to someone else's property? Who needed to be protected? Who needed to make more money? Who needed to form an alliance? Who needed something? That's why you got married. You didn't get married because you liked them. You got married because they could do something for you. And so I think it makes great sense Felix would have married someone who was Jewish because that immediately gave him an in to the community where he lived. And we know that being Jewish did not preclude people from having authority. I mean, we're about to talk about Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa is a Herod. There are families who were propped up by the Romans, given a lot of authority and a lot of power, even though they were Jewish. And they were not religiously Jewish. They were simply culturally Jewish or ethnically Jewish. But religion had nothing to do with it. So my assumption is that Felix may have married that kind of Jewish person because he wanted a political alliance. I, did not, I do not know that, though. But it would make sense. We see the thing about marriage. Sorry, this is just an aside. I assume many of you remember the 1928 prayer book. If you, you laugh, I don't know, it came, it's, the new prayer book came out after, before I was born. So the 1928 prayer book, I know, gasp, sorry. Um, plus I wasn't raised Episcopalian, so I don't really even, it, it's, the new prayer book is all I know. So the 1928 prayer book, if you look at the marriage ceremony, what you will not really see is love. So if, you, if you're interested to see the way that marriage has evolved, even just like in the middle of the 20th century, look at the liturgical language around the way that we do the ceremony. If you look at the 1979 marriage ceremony from the 1979 prayer book and the 1928 prayer book, the 1979 prayer book talks about love and the little prayer that is, uh, if we want to say it or not, is up to our discretion, is the one about having kids. What do you think the very first thing in the 1928 prayer book is when we pray for the couple? Oh, to have kids. That's why you got married. You got married because you needed security, you needed to have kids, you needed to combine some families. Now, of course, that's not why most people in this room got married. But the shift from business to romance is pretty modern. Okay, there you go. It's just inside. Anything else before we move on? All right, second section. Festus is going to go and have a little consultation with King Agrippa. So before we get into the actual text of the Bible, let's talk about who this guy is. We see that King Agrippa and Bernice come to visit Festus. If you notice, in verse 13, after several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, Bernice is not explicitly named Agrippa's wife because she wasn't. Bernice was his sister. But let's talk about them. Okay. <laughs> Herod the Great was the guy who built, who expanded and really made Jerusalem shine. 
If we think of the second temple, that would be the temple that Jesus went into. It was, that was rebuilt after the Jewish exile in Babylon. Herod the Great expanded that temple and made it grand. It was, it was a sight to behold, huge and showpiece of the entire Jewish people. Herod the Great lived before Jesus was born, and he died, mm, we're not entirely sure. He either died right after Jesus was born or right before Jesus was born, depends on who you talk to, but we're gonna just go with Herod the Great was alive at the very end of his life when Jesus was born. He's the one who in Matthew called for all of the babies to be killed. That Herod the Great died very shortly after Jesus was born. His son, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas came to power after Herod the Great, still called Herod. Herod kind of became almost like Caesar, almost like a title. And so the Herod that Jesus sees in Luke's gospel when he's on trial is the son of Herod the Great, all right? Fast forward, the great-grandson of Herod the Great is Agrippa that we see here. He's actually Agrippa II. So we've had Herod, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Agrippa I, Agrippa II. So still the same family, a monarchy that's been passed down. Agrippa II that we see right here in this passage is the last Herod who is king over Judea because it's not too long from now that Rome will sack Jerusalem, destroy the temple, that they will be, the Jews will be swept off to Masada where there will be a mass suicide and the rest of the Jews are taken and spread all over the Roman Empire. So Agrippa II is the last in the line of Herod kings. So who is Bernice? Bernice was Agrippa II's, or is Agrippa II's sister. She's a year younger than he is. She was married to their uncle, Herod, who is king of Chalcis. But when their uncle, her first husband, died, she came to live with her brother. And they lived together. And they were an incestuous sort of uh, co-rulers, king and queen, so to speak. But because that was frowned upon, she ultimately would get married to another person and then divorce that person and come back to Agrippa. So who's seen Game of Thrones? It's very kind of Game of Thrones, where you've got this brother-sister who are in love with each other, but they're, that they really can't be. That's gross. And so they have to kind of hide it, but they don't hide it very well, and they still travel around together, and they still live together. And so they have now come over to see Festus. The other thing you need to know is that everybody knew this. So this was not a secret, and Bernice would have been very tabloid-worthy in her day. And... <laughs> It is almost certain that Luke, in this writing, tells this story. You will see at the end of chapter 25, you might ask yourself, why is this even in here? 
because there's not, there's not much meat to this experience right here. Most scholars think that Luke is kind of playing at a sensational moment. It would be like, I don't know, Billy Graham hanging out with Marilyn Monroe a little much. Um, so you sort of have that interesting moment here where Paul is with Bernice. You're like, interesting. Like, what would Bernice and Paul talk about? So this is almost a little nod to something a little scandalous and sensational, which is kind of fun of Luke, I think. So, any questions about Bernice and Agrippa II before we move on to the actual story? <laughs> Why move on? Why move on? I know, it's so good. Um, and you definitely, you definitely see a glimpse. I love this kind of stuff. I am... <laughs> One thing you should know about me, just as a confession, is I watch every award show that comes on TV. I always have a bottle of Prosecco. That's what I do. I watch the award show. So I'm not on 5.30 service on Sundays when the Grammys are on or the Oscars are on. It's not me, because I want to see them. And when I, was in, when I was in my first parish, I was like the fifth associate in the parish. And so I always was visiting hospitals on Fridays. And there are so many people, so many priests who are so sweet and dear, and they do things like bring communion to people in hospitals. I kind of feel like if you're in the hospital, you don't necessarily need communion every day. So I figured Friday was your day off. And so I would do things like bring us weeklies and candy bars, because I kind of feel like when you're in the hospital, you need a cheeseburger, you know? I mean, communion's great, but you also need a milkshake. So that's, that's a little bit about me. So I love this kind of Agrippa and Bernice moment here because I think it's kind of fun of Luke to throw this in there for not a lot of productivity, just for some kind of fun. So here we go. Festus calls on Agrippa because Festus sort of needs Agrippa's help. Festus does not understand what is going on with Paul. He gets that the Jews hate Paul. They want him dead. He's heard what they've said about Paul, and he's heard Paul's very short defense, but this does not make any sense to Agrippa because it's all religious stuff. And Agrippa, I'm sorry, doesn't make any sense to Festus because it's all religious stuff. And so Festus calls on Agrippa, who is the Jewish king, to explain what the issue is between the, Jew, the Jewish leadership and Paul. Do you think that's going to work out very well? Agrippa doesn't know what's going on with the Jews either. So Festus consults Agrippa, and this is what Festus says about Paul. Look at verse 18. When the accuser stood up, so Festus is recalling when the Jewish leaders came to Caesarea, when the accuser stood up, they did not charge him, Paul, with any of the crimes that I was expecting. Instead, they had certain points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So look at what Festus is saying to Agrippa. I find this fascinating for one particular reason. It's easy for us to forget that the idea of Christianity makes no sense. We've grown up with it. This is still first century. This is 
30 years at most after Jesus' death, probably more like 25. Jesus is a name that people know. His followers have done enough to get people's attention, but it still doesn't make any sense. So what's the whole premise of the people who follow Jesus? He's not just a good teacher, he's not just a healer, he's not just a miracle worker. They think he died, but then didn't stay dead. And didn't stay dead, but then what is he doing? Can you just imagine how odd that sounds? And Jesus is no longer here, but I thought you said he was alive. Well, he is alive, but I'm sorry, he did what? He ascended? I mean, this makes no sense, right? So I can, I can sympathize with Festus not understanding why the Jews are upset about this, because it sounds ridiculous. So here the Jews are with this brilliant legal tradition. They've got control of this huge area. People come to the temple, offer sacrifices. It, it guides the lives of so many people. And this one guy who just didn't stay dead, but is no longer here, so is he dead, but maybe not? I don't know. This guy is going to cause you this much grief? It doesn't make any sense. So the issue here for Festus is squarely about resurrection. He doesn't understand what resurrection means. What is interesting for us in church history is that Christians don't really understand what resurrection means for a while. Well, let me put it this way. I don't really understand what resurrection means. I can talk about it. I mean, I think we can all pray about it, but it's a mystery, right? I had a, uh, I'll tell the story, it's okay. Um, they don't listen to this podcast. So there's a young family here whose child does not receive communion. And I remember when I first got here, I said, you know, does he need to be baptized? And they said, no, he's been baptized. I said, well, you know, he's welcome to receive communion with us. Um, and they said, we don't want him to receive communion until he understands what communion really is. To which I, I replied, do you understand what communion really is? Because I don't really understand it. I mean, I, I believe in what I think is happening, but understand? No, not really understand. It's a mystery. Christianity is all about the mystery. Most of what we ground ourselves in, we cannot explain. Now, if you are not Episcopalian, you might not feel settled with me saying we can't explain it. Because there are traditions, especially Protestant traditions, who have differentiated themselves from Roman Orthodox and Anglicans because they have an answer. And because they say they understand literally what's happening in all of these moments, that's super for them. I don't. I believe that we can't quite understand what it is that Jesus did. And that we should try, so we should do things like study, but that we'll never actually understand. That's the point, is that we try. But that God's got these realities and mysteries that will be revealed to us at some point. They just haven't been quite yet. That's, if we get to Revelation, maybe we'll do that next. All right, so we've got... That's really the end of the second section. 
questions about the first conversation between Festus and Agrippa. Okay, so that I mean, the question is, why wouldn't Agrippa know what's going on with the Jews? Is that right? So Agrippa is Jewish, yes. But his role is political. He's not king because of his knowledge of Judaism. He just happens to be Jewish and king. What I really want to say to you, I don't know what I really want to say to you. Okay, so at the risk of, do not let this offend you, okay? Would you go to your president right now and ask him to explain Christian theology? I mean, whatever, we won't go any farther than that, but I'm just saying no is everyone's answer, I hope, um, except what, I won't go there, sorry. Um, so being Christian or being Jewish and then also being in a political leadership role does not mean you really understand the religion. And so Agrippa certainly knows some stuff, but he was raised as a, I mean, he is multiple generations in a monarchy, which means his bubble from the real people is so thick, many generations thick, he has no grasp of reality. He, he's not a real person. He's never worked. He's likely never walked on dirty streets. I mean, just think through all the things he has never done. So his capacity to understand what religious people are doing in Jerusalem is really shallow. It doesn't mean he can't maybe speak the language a little bit or know some of the words, but he's almost certainly misusing many of the ideas like we see with some of our politicians when they quote something from the Bible. You know, I remember when Pete Sessions quoted that thing from Romans, and I was like, excuse me, right? Stay in your lane, right? This is not, that's not yours, right? You do your, your stuff, your, civ your civil law. Don't start quoting the Bible because the capacity and the knowledge is just too shallow. Be an authority in what you know. You don't know that well enough. And I think that's what we see with Agrippa is he knows enough to maybe be dangerous, but he does not know enough. That was a very risky tangent. Um, what else? No? Okay. Let's go to the end of this chapter. So we've got this Roman governor. Festus, who is counseling with Herod Agrippa. What I want to note here at the end of this chapter is that the connection between this moment with Paul and the trial of Jesus is not an accident. If I were to ask you to tell the story of Jesus' trial, my expectation is that for those of you who, feel, who felt confident to tell that story, one of the moments you would likely recall from Jesus' trial is being sent by Pilate to Herod. I've already referenced it once in this study. 
The scene where Jesus is sent from Pilate to Herod is meant for Pilate to push off the responsibility of what to do with Jesus onto someone else. That scene, that visit to Herod, only happens in Luke. It does not happen in the other three Gospels. So Luke, who wrote that story, is now the same person writing this story. It is not accidental that Luke has set up a very similar scene that any of those early Christians would have heard echo back to Jesus' trial. Now, we've already noted in here, and I want to make sure to note, Luke has not set Paul up as another Jesus in the ways that he could. But it doesn't mean that Luke is not creating a scenario in which truly faithful people will experience Jesus-like judgment and suffering. I'll say that in a different way. We know from stories like this that Luke was very certain that if you choose to follow Jesus, you will experience some judgment and pain, heartbreak, and even death like Jesus did. That does not make you Jesus, but it does make you a faithful follower. And this is all set on the premise that the world rejects God. Jesus came to call our attention to what is true about God. And we cannot have both. We cannot have all of the world and Jesus. We just can't. We all are on this sliding scale of fully world and fully kingdom. And we slide up and down on this spectrum throughout our whole life. Sometimes we're a lot closer to the kingdom and sometimes we're a lot farther away from it. And whenever we have a chance to question our intentions and our behaviors and our habits, our priorities, we're able to move a little bit closer to the kingdom. That's the whole idea of Lent, right? The whole idea of Lent is repentance, which means literally to turn. And the turn is meant to give us a chance to say, if we've slid a little too close to the world on that spectrum, we can pause. The church says, hey, 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 look up. Think about what you're doing. Do you want to be doing that? And we're able to say, you know what? That's a little too worldly. I'm going to move closer to the kingdom. And we go back and forth. Oftentimes when we are feeling secure and confident and healthy, we're going to be closer to the kingdom. When we are feeling insecure and hurt and broken and worried, then we slide a little closer to the world. As we look around, do you know just last week, I may preach about this on Sunday, I'm not sure. Last week, a study came out, and for the very first time since these surveys were done, the largest religious group in America is now atheist. So they just edged out Catholics for the first time, where there are now more atheists than there are Catholics, Protestants, or you know, all the other groups. And it's still, it's 20, I don't know, 26% or something like that. But what I find very interesting, and there are lots of studies to show this, and I think this might be a little heavy for Palm Sunday, but 
I think it's very important that we look at, uh, we, can, we can talk about the goodness of God and love and healing and all the other stuff we want to, but if we want to kind of have a rubber hits the road moment, there is direct correlation between people who are connected to faith communities and mental and emotional health. There are multiple times more anxiety disorders, personality disorders, depression, you name it, with people who are not connected to a faith community than people who are. Now, we can say, we can theologize that if we want to and say that, you know, God, what, I don't know, helps the people who go to church more? That's not okay with me. Instead, I think what we need to start talking about is the utility of church, the actual usefulness of being in a faith community, that it's not just something that feels nice, it is something that actually we need to be healthy. And that kind of health comes in ways we understand and don't understand. God is there doing stuff we don't understand, but there are also ways that we are being healthy and we do understand them. When you feel isolated and alone, you're more likely to feel depressed and you're more likely to feel anxious and afraid and on and on and on. When you're in a faith community, people know you, they see you, they miss you, they call you to accountability, they celebrate with you, they cry with you, you're not alone. And it is much more likely that you will be a healthier person. And of course, it's always healthier, right? It's not perhaps healthy 100%, but is it healthier than you would have been otherwise? Totally. And why am I talking about that? Um, can you remember? I know, atheism, I guess, I don't, I remember going to, the first time I went to Lambeth Palace with the Archbishop of Canterbury, we were talking in a room, there were a little Q&A about what's going on in the church and everything, and we're in one of those rooms, it's very interesting to be in a place that is so old, and in every room there are 25 pictures of former archbishops of Canterbury, right, that go back to, I don't know, when the first archbishop, a long time. And so we're sitting in this room, and it happens to be archbishops from the 17th century, so the 1600s. And he walks over, and he points to one, and he says, in 1637 or whatever, do you know what the Easter attendance at St. Paul's was that year? No, bishop. What was it? Eight eight people. And so he said, we've been here before. It'll be okay. But we need to stay strong with vision and with faith because it's been worse. And so, yeah, atheists are growing, but we've seen this before. And it's a chance for us to have what Phyllis Tickle used to call an, a, a garage sale. She said the church every few hundred years has to just get rid of the crap that they have collected in the basement and the attic, right? All of the stuff that does not matter, we've got to get rid of because it's keeping people away. And we've got to get rid of those things and bring the hurdles down as low as possible so that people can see what we actually do because they all need it. It's just we've put so much fluff in front of it that people can't see it anymore.
Yes. Well, that's, well, that's not on topic. Um, <laughs> I've been so clearly on topic for the last 20 minutes. Um, so, <laughs> question was, would the Catholic Church ever change and let priests get married? So, I think there is, this matters to me because I was raised Catholic. I think the Catholic Church has so much good to offer I mean, no one's perfect, but there is a lot of good there. And celibate male priests is just, first off, was never right to begin with. And it's really keeping them from moving forward as they should. I think it is eminently defensible to require priests to be celibate than it is to be male. But... So I'll say that again. I think that if you look at Scripture, it is much easier... Oh, it's 11.30, sorry. It's much easier to show that Scripture articulates celibacy as a way to maintain focus on God than it ever says that priests should be men. That's, that's nowhere. So even though I, but even though I think that it's easier to say that priests should be celibate, I think because of who we are and who they are, they'll let men get married before they let women be priests. And that makes no theological sense. That's just a social thing. So, sorry, let me, one second. So we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to recap the very end of chapter 25 because if you look ahead to chapter 26, Agrippa continues his conversation with Paul. And so it really begins with the last few verses of chapter 25. So just kind of do a little bookmark. The last few verses of chapter 25, when Agrippa and Festus are talking, introduce the conversation Agrippa will have with Paul in chapter 26. So we're just going to bump that to next week. And so reminder, Palm Sunday this Sunday, Holy Week next week, we will have Bible study in Holy Week, and then we'll celebrate Easter, invite a friend, bring him to church. Yes, ma'am, real fast. If I would mention why people are drawn to atheism, yeah, next week, yeah, the quick answer is they're not, they just don't like the church. But I'll talk more about that. All right. Thank you all. Have a good week.